Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We're joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccant. Most importantly, you are you. You are here. And that makes this the stuff they don't want you to know. Folks, whether you are listening to this at the beginning of your day or the end of your day or night, uh, you, you could probably identify with a situation common to everybody. You just got home. You did some big stuff. And... You're starving, but the last thing you want to do is cook. It's like a whole other job. But Ben, what if I ordered something and had it delivered to me, waited upon hand and foot like we did during the pandemic? That could continue indefinitely, right? Yeah. So what would you do in this hypothetical situation? And, you know, if you're like millions of people every year in the U.S. alone, you order delivery. Until pretty recently, uh, our options would be fairly limited in this regard. But now, as we record, there is an entire industry built only around bringing your favorite restaurant to your door, dot, 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 ellipses, for a price. The problem is some of these restaurants may not be what they seem. Behold, fellow conspiracy realist, the rise of the ghost kitchen. Here are the facts. I just want to put it out there. I think there's a third option, everybody. Mm. Uh, either cooking your own food, ordering out, or option number three, cereal. Cereal. That's true. <laughs> I just remember that being an option or, or, quite a bit uh, in my, my college my, days. My girlfriend likes to uh, to dine on what she calls square snacks, which are like cheese slices in the little plastic cellophane and like Ritz, which is round, or uh, particularly um, saltines, which are square. So that's also an option. But it's true. Ben, oh, yeah. Um, the Internet calls it girl dinner. Girl dinner comes in all shapes and sizes. That's like a meme that I haven't quite cracked. It's a meme meme. 
Ben, you, you nailed it. Um, this is a thing. Uh, and I, I mentioned the pandemic because I think, you know, one of the pluses of the pandemic, if it can be referred to as that, is that we all kind of felt like we had this extended vacation. And uh, after a little period of time where we weren't completely terrified of touching anything from the outside world, ordering in from Uber Eats or DoorDash or Seamless or Postmates or any number of these services, kind of became a thing that we relied on. And dare I say, some of us kind of probably figured it more into our lives post-pandemic than we would have if that event had not taken place. Yeah. I mean, even before the pandemic, Checkers was right. Checkers, perhaps the most philosophical of fast food joints in the States, said, you got to eat. People have always (laughs) had to do it. Access to food is still one of the guiding factors of all human civilization. People love food. And additionally, people love convenience, even before the pandemic. So it's no surprise these two primal drives would intersect. I actually... um, I was talking a little bit with our friends at Station 16 who have uh, done some excellent social media videos with us. They love weird facts. And quite recently, we learned that the modern roots of food delivery in the West started back in the late 1800s. A pair of Italian royals in 1889 became the world's first pizza delivery customers. So shout out to King Umberto and Queen Margarita. Can you guess what kind of pizza they had delivered? Uh, Pepperoni? Close. Margarita. They got a margarita pizza. (laughs) Yeah, and I swear I've seen a pizza chain, if not a chain, definitely a handful of of one-offs called Umberto's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if it's a coincidence. You know me and my reaching and grasping at etymological straws, but it's certainly possible. It's weird, though, right? Because I, I for some reason, I was on the fence. I imagined the predecessor of food delivery would be much, much older or much more recent. But turns out 1889. And, uh, and ever since then, food and food delivery has sort of mirrored these larger historical trends. Wars affect how food is delivered. They affect the way food is preserved, right? And if it weren't for Napoleon, we might not have canned food. Uh, the technological advances, shifting forms of labor rights and so on, they all determine how and when people order stuff to eat at home. Uh, the most amazing thing happened just a year later in 1890. Uh, have you guys heard of Dabawala or Dabawala? New to me. Yeah, no, new to me too. Just really quickly, Umberto's pizza chain in New York State and New York City, like maybe like 12 or 13 of them, but I wasn't just making that up. <laughs> no, Tell us about the Mumbai no. Dabawala service. I know about the Chai Wallas, you know, which is a very popular, you know, uh, dispensation kind of method of, of chai tea uh, in train stations. And that becomes very sort of a national sort of identity factor for uh, India. Um, but tell me about the Dabawalas. Yeah, Dabawala dates back to 1890. It's the very first massive meal delivery service, the very first meal delivery system en masse, and it occurs under British colonialism in India. Here's what happened. Tons and tons of people moved to uh, Mumbai, which was then called Bombay. They would leave for work extremely early in the morning, and they would work 
all day and into the night. They didn't have time to dine out. And so with all these hungry people flooding the city, a guy named Mahadeo Havaji Bachache, uh, pardon our pronunciation, figured this out. He said, let me get a small army of dudes to deliver food. And these delivery men became known as Dabawalas, which translates to the one who carries a box. And if you ever want to have an interesting lunchbox, check out Tiffin's, T-I-F-F-I-N. They're super cool. I keep trying to rationalize buying one. But uh, but this this service is so successful delivering food that it, booms it feeds hundreds of thousands of people on a daily basis uh, and continues to do so in during the rise of food delivery apps this system by the way is so sophisticated and so accurate that management companies study it for guidance their cool. error rate is something like one in x million reminds me of the way the british cabbies have to study those crazy routes and maps and take that test called the knowledge hmm well, let's get back. OK, so we that's an amazing like alteration into how food can get to you and your family. Right. That's a huge change. It's amazing. And then fast forward to just us growing up when when you guys were growing up, the only food that ever got delivered to my house were it was a pizza or from whatever chain, whatever pizza chain they would deliver. And uh, like a Chinese food restaurant basically would come to me. Um I I think I think there may have been an Indian restaurant like that was a little bit further away, but like I, it, they wouldn't come to my house. Basically, did you guys have stakeout? Remember stakeout? No, their whole thing was that they were a delivery, a steak delivery place. They would deliver burgers and steaks, and you know, kind of the kind of their whole gimmick was it was the kind of stuff you typically have to go to a you know sit down restaurant for. But that the fact that that could even be a business model kind of gimmick shows your point that there really were, were very few options. And I always think of Chinese restaurants as kind of cornering the the market on delivery for a very long time because they would hire specific staff right at at, a, at a restaurant to do their deliveries. That was it. That's what they worked for. That's how they got money tips through that single restaurant. Mm -hmm. Like uh, pizza delivery uh, mm -hmm. workers as well. And this is also the age of the frozen food delivery truck where there would be, I can't remember the different names of them, but the, these guys would drive through neighborhoods uh, similar to ice cream vans. And they would, they would deliver like a month's worth of frozen you know, microwave meals. But uh, you might be interested to find, Matt, that we have a returning guest in tonight's story, the notorious whoosh, whoosh, consulting firm, McKenzie. McKenzie agrees with you, Matt. They say that uh, just a little less than two decades ago, if you wanted delivery, with notable exceptions like your example, Stakeout, Noel, most people in the U.S., if they were able to get delivery, they would get uh, something from a Chinese restaurant or they would get pizza delivered. It became normalized. And uh, now that is no longer the case. The food delivery industry has, as of just like three years ago, it was worth more than $150 billion. And that price is the result of a triple digit growth since 2017. And then the, it was already doing gangbusters before the COVID-19 pandemic hit. It was growing about 8% a year. And then everything changed because you couldn't go places right 
or you didn't want to go places, you risked exposing yourself and your loved ones to a very dangerous pathogen. So now we're in the current situation where in the U.S. alone, 60% of people order delivery or get some takeaway at least once a week. And I don't know about you guys, but in the interest of transparency, I'm probably among that number. I cook a lot, but not every single day of the week. I think I love to cook as well, but I admittedly do uh, delivery minimum two times a week. Like complete transparency. No question about it. Sometimes more. Well, I'll just be the minor outlier. I've pretty much stopped unless I don't have time to make food for my son after like, for instance, after we're recording or something and there's not enough time between bedtime and me, you know, stopping recording with you guys, then I will maybe do a DoorDash or something. But so that it I've, arrives like right when you're done. The timing exactly. is really helpful for that too. Exactly. I don't know if you guys have ever seen me pull my phone up like as <laughs> right as we're finishing Dude. an episode, but it's because it's I have I kind of have to do it it's or else it's not going to happen. Thing for those um, lifestyle you know necessities, it's also a, a great crutch for lazy people. It's probably more my deal, but yeah. But just to, to, to the point, Ben, I think it is so. Um. It can't be un- understated how much the fear of catching some potentially scary thing uh, was and how much that pushed all of us, glo- like globally, humanity to move in this direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And right now, the online delivery business is projected to reach $1 trillion by 2030. That's assuming another pandemic spike doesn't occur. If another global crisis like the pandemic uh, spikes again, then that number is going to be much, much higher. I think the way I, the way I put it was a uh, pandemic spike could put some real stank on those numbers, but that's perhaps a big problem. Yeah. It reminds me too of the way like it's become really difficult to get people to fully commit to going back to the office because that whole trend just was so, you know, hammered into us, the whole work from home thing. People are kind of want to give it up. So it becomes this whole negotiation with employers where it's like, well, if you come into the office a couple of days a week, we'll give you free snacks or something. Because, you know, it's hard to turn back the clock when people make these big life changes. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And no, obviously, for anybody who tuned into our previous episode, you know that McKenzie is a source with, let's say, an angle. <laughs> they have a goal. Uh, the research is solid, though. They point to the pandemic's effect on food service and they say, you know, check it out. Restaurants that once upon a time would never serve takeout. They found themselves relying on it to keep their business afloat. And companies like DoorDash, Grubhub, Uber Eats and, and so on, uh, et cetera, at all. They flourish during this time, though. To be absolutely fair, we cannot necessarily say the same about the drivers working for those companies. Mm. Yeah. And this is, you know, a pretty deep topic, you know, because obviously you see there's so much wrapped into it uh, from very recent history. Um, So this might be the first in sort of a mini series of episodes. But for now, let's uh, leave the history stuff there largely. um, And let's uh, let's move on to this. If you live in a developed country and have 
a disposable income, let's call it. Although sometimes it's just, you know, this you have to eat, to your point about checkers, Ben. It's just a matter of, like, what options do you have? How much are you going to spend? Can you afford to have this delivered right to your door? Uh, so if you do have the means to pay that extra um, fee, all sorts of restaurants are at your disposal to wait upon you hand and foot. Everything from, you know, fast food restaurants like checkers um, to literal fine dining. A lot of these really nice places are supplementing their income um, by you know, having a delivery component. Some places totally are like, no, we don't do that. That's not, um, we don't have the personnel. And that we should get into that a little bit too later. I'm sure you will. It's about how much personnel this takes and how much of a tax it can put on the people making the food. That's obviously a big part of this episode. But um, you can call a restaurant directly, sure. And honestly, a lot of places would ask that you do do that because if you use a go-between like an Uber Eats or whatever, there are fees involved and the restaurant's having to pay out some of their, um, you know, their profits to these, these third-party services. So people typically don't really do that. They use these apps. Um, but often if you search for a type of food, whatever you might want, it's there. And then you just wait. And frankly, depending on what neighborhood you live in, what part of the world you live in, it could have come pretty absurdly quick. But with all that being true, tonight's question uh, dives into something that might surprise a lot of us listening along at home. Where do all these restaurants come from when you search for a genre of cuisine? Like you say, I want some pho, and there's a pho restaurant that you've never heard of, but they can get it to you in 35 minutes. Who are these people? What the heck is a ghost kitchen? I suggest we pause for a word from our sponsors, maybe a quick snack break, and then uh, continue to explore. Because, God, it's such a cool name. Ghost Kitchen? Yeah. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC 
was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Here's where it gets crazy. We've talked about this one a little bit off air, uh, and maybe I think we mentioned it in a strange news or listener mail segment, but a great way to get into this phenomenon is a Reddit thread from 2020 in Philadelphia. Shout out to Reddit user Kendall Neff, who ordered uh, what she thought was pizza from a local Philly uh, restaurant called Pasquale's or Pasquale's. Yeah, this is the one you brought. I think, Ben, you brought this up or one of you guys brought this up. And I was like, what is Pasquale's? And you guys were like, oh, let me tell you. Uh, but isn't it the idea where you're just you're in one of these apps and you you find a place that looks to be pretty nearby. You order what you think is a local pizza. Well, and Pasquale certainly has the ring of truth to it in terms of like, you know, local Philly type fare. I mean, I think one of the most popular Philly places is called Pequod's. And then there's also like a cheesesteak type place with names like that. It has that sort of, you know, oh, this seems legit, right? Yeah, it's Philly is famous for having restaurants where it's some guy's name. Right. So this uh, this pizza and wing joint passes that sniff test and our friend from Reddit, she gets her food delivered and she texts the driver afterwards after the delivery succeeds. And she says, quote, also just curious, was this food from Chuck E. Cheese? The driver replies and says there was uh, this was the Chuck E. Cheese store, but the windows had the wing restaurant on them. I was curious, too. Oh, LMAO. Well, first of all, what tipped her off to ask the driver that question? I'm I'm curious there. She was already suspicious before it even arrived. Let me just say, I think we all know a Chuck E. Cheese pizza when we've tasted a Chuck E. Cheese pizza one time. Yeah. Taste it again. School lunch pizza. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm with you there, Matt, because it turns out. Our pal Charles Entertainment has been using some burner identities. Pasquale is the name of the chef in the Chuck E. Cheese extended universe. <laughs> and kind of animal you, is he? Is he human? <laughs> he's a party animal. Bro. <laughs> yeah, and uh, if you go, pizza party animal. A pizza party animal, just so. And if you go to delivery websites across the U.S., you will see Pasquale's all over the place because there are a lot of Chuck E. Cheese's still. Check out our um, Ridiculous History series on the history of, of Charles Entertainment. And they so people ask them about this. They ask Chuck E. Cheese about this. Uh, this kind like, of no comment. Get out of here with that. Well, <laughs> this, yeah, this kind of uh, name switcheroo is not for the record illegal. And they said, uh, they said the following. They were talking to Business Insider, and one of their reps said, Pasquale's Pizza and Wings is a delivery-only premium pizza brand operating from Chuck E. Cheese Kitchens. 
so DBA doing business as. Well, we also know Chuck E. Cheese uh, has, has had some financial woes for a long time, and it was just exacerbated by the uh, the pandemic. So this makes a lot of sense where they're like, holy crap, we've got this op- golden opportunity to like kind of trick people, but that do it in a way that's like not overtly bad until they get caught. I don't blame them exactly, but it's shady still, it seems. Don't you guys think? Uh Kind of, but yeah, I'm but on the fence too. They've got a commercial kitchen in every one of their locations. They're probably not cooking that much pizza for the kids that are running around doing all the the gaming and stuff, you're, right? No, you're dead Jesus. Right, dude. Especially like, during a pandemic. This feels like a move because I don't, I, I can't imagine that you could capture a lot of the market share if you just said, "Hey, we're Chuck E. Cheese. We deliver exactly. now." Exactly. That's I mean, right. you could you could say it's a willful deception, and there's some validity to that. But on the other hand, it is a smart and totally legal business move. I, let's face it, Chuck does not have the most stellar rep amid pizza snobs, and right. was right. And you know, it's whether whether or not you agree with the idea, folks. We might be surprised to learn Chucky E is not the only rat in the game here. Da 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 da. Applebee's also delivers food under a sub-brand called Neighborhood Wings. Just Salad has another brand called Health Tribes. These are targeted, or at least Health Tribes is targeted at people with dietary restrictions. Doghouse has eight other virtual brands. Companies love this stuff because the, look, all the food goes through the same health standards as any other restaurant. Uh, They are, to your point, Matt, they're just aware of pre-existing brand associations and the baggage that comes with that. So if if you're already ordering something expensive, like Uber Eats is always going to be kind of expensive, then you might not want to say, I'll pay for Chuck E. Cheese. You might want to say, if I'm splurging, let me get something quality. Let me go Pascales. Yeah. Well, let, let's let's talk about that just with Applebee's because the neighborhood wings thing is a newer thing. And uh, it before they tried to call it Cosmic Wings and really put it off as though it was a whole separate thing. And then they had to shutter that whole side of the business and move it over to, to basically this thing, the neighborhood wings. Or like if you go to the website, CosmicWings.com, I think that's what it is. Yeah. That for during the pandemic, that was a whole separate business that Applebee's was running, kind of without the Applebee's, but it was all from Applebee's. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but was it even like like spins on Applebee's dishes? Do they like because even so many Applebee's stuff? Ask Paul. Mission Control is one of his favorite restaurants. Uh, they're kind of <laughs> signature dishes, you know. Like they mm-hmm. like you know uh, what is it? Now I'm thinking of chilies, but like for let's take chilies for example, like southwestern egg rolls. You'd see that on a menu for another place and be like, where have I heard of this before? Or were they like kind of masquerading the names of the dishes too, or maybe even just using the ingredients in different ways? A uh, little bit of all. A little bit of all those approaches, depending on the venue or the outfit. And, you know, look, this is to be clear. This was not some kind of crooked conspiracy to move like contaminated pizza or (laughs) literal bad apples. This was we have no proof of that. We have no proof yet. (laughs) Got to move these pies. (laughs) And of course, if that is the case, they'll never get in trouble because the franchise model is a hell of an argument in court. But but these so we're showing you that this is a very common practice. As a matter of fact, there is a non-zero chance that some of us listening this evening might have a new favorite restaurant from the pandemic 
And guess what? It might be the IHOP up the street. Just going to let you know, let's step out of Plato's Grubhub cavern here and be honest with each other. It's, it's so easy to get caught up in like brand stuff, you know, where it's like this place is known for having the best eggs in town. And that hype can kind of infiltrate your mind and your perceptions. And they might just be lightly seasoned scrambled eggs. But because you got it from X place that's got a reputation, it tastes better. So, you know, Pasquale's. You thinking that it's like, oh, I've discovered this new neighborhood joint. You in your mind might have these positive associations with something that you've definitely eaten before at a kid's birthday party. We learned that. You guys remember we talked with, oh, gosh, it, um, our friends at Savor talked with us one time about the perceptions of wine. Right. Mm-hmm. And oh, like a, just a great analog for sure. Just the price the way the label looks, the environment in which you're enjoying it, like so much of the psychology behind the way your brain interprets that flavor. I think it's it's so strong here when it comes to the branding that you see when you're scrolling through potential food options. Yeah, absolutely. Because taste, uh, enjoyment of something you taste is a, is weirdly similar to experiences on hallucinogens scene and setting and context play a huge role even unto the color of the plate that your food is on like a blue versus red plate and and this is is weird also the uh science behind sommelier practices mm-hmm. not as solid as uh, as we would all like to think but these in these cases these are all established, often gigantic national brands, and they're wearing, you know, they're wearing a a fake mustache and some glasses to get into your house. But, you know, to serve you good food, they just don't want you to know that's actually Charles underneath the glasses and the trench coat. But there's something else that happened, and it's going to continue happening, probably. What if the restaurant you are ordering from isn't a physical restaurant at all. This is the rise of the ghost kitchen. And like we said before we went to the ad break, ghost kitchen is such a cool name. It should be the name of a band or an album. You know what I mean? I would listen to a mixtape. I would listen to DJ Khalid's ghost kitchen. Yeah, It reminds oh. me a lot of ghost guns. Which is, you know, a similarly uh, not untraceable, but I guess the idea here is that you don't know where it came from, and that's what a ghost gun is. Is like a gun where the provenance of it is is kind of difficult to determine. the The other name for these, which I think is great too, I'm sure you guys saw this, is a dark kitchen mm-hmm. or delivery only kitchen. But dark yeah. kitchen and ghost kitchen are the two best. Mm-hmm. And one part of this that makes a lot of sense too is to use. Get the most bang for your buck. If you're a business owner and you like have a kitchen, a commercial kitchen, maybe people aren't coming in and sitting down as much anymore. So maybe you have a lot of space and, and a lot of commercial uh, kitchen equipment and, and implements. It's a great way to, to maximize the use of all of that and stay afloat because we know the margins for restaurants are very narrow and that stuff's very expensive. Oh, man, just the... The regulations you have to follow to have a functional commercial kitchen in any given state, because they do vary by state here in the United States, at least like it's not only is it money, it is effort. It is uh, special. Like you need to have somebody yeah. who knows what they're doing. Ooh, right? Watch Gordon Ramsay kitchen nightmares, you know, to mm-hmm. see just how quickly these things can fall apart and crumble into the ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And look, it's also tremendously expensive. 
to open a traditional restaurant. It's crazy money, which is why a lot of times very talented chefs team up with someone who's essentially the money person, right? And they make all kinds of sacrifices on the way just to fit that bottom line. That's also why menus change, depending again on broader sociological patterns. There's a method to the madness here. Each of these We'll call them delivery kitchens. Uh, no, you know what? Let's call them ghost yep. kitchens. Yep. E- let's go with the cool name. Each of these, they're typically going to be located in areas where a lot of people order food delivered. So your favorite large or midsize city in the U.S. almost definitely has a series of ghost kitchens now. It's never just one. And the kitchens themselves, they'll have like a big storefront. You can't roll up to one of these places that often looks like a warehouse and say, hey, let me get, you know, a number three or let me get a mean chicken parm. They'll say, "Uh, go to the app, sir, and, and order it to a different address. This is a virtual restaurant. It's a digital storefront, which means they save so much money, not just on real estate, but on front of house, on overhead, on all those other things that will just nickel and dime a traditional uh, food joint to death. It's almost like a digital version of the kind of pop-ups you see a lot of times where a restaurant will will allow a budding chef to to use their kitchen or to use their space for a you know an exclusive period of time or whatever like but a this test is kitchen a test exactly but like you know you, you 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 it's an event but like with this you can kind of get on get your thing off the ground really quickly and test the waters and I know a lot of places that probably start like this and then ease their way into getting a brick-and-mortar space after they realize that the demand is there, which I think is is really cool, as opposed to spending all the money and then realizing, oh, no, we've made a horrible decision. We can't sustain this. Well, places was- like Gato Bisco, places like – I mean, there are, there are tons. This is very popular in Atlanta, New York, and Los Angeles in particular. I imagine many other cities as well. Yeah, yeah, and and often the route is this, right? One of these shared kitchens, then maybe a food truck in a lot of those markets, then a brick and mortar if that's successful. You're basically going up a chain now of viability in getting your food out to people. And this ghost kitchen concept, again, from the concept, feels like a great idea that would work for everybody. Still, uh, still a significant amount of financial risk, but a far smaller amount of risk than would be associated with, you know, someone saying, it's always been my dream to have a, a, a seafood counter and we're mm-hmm. going to make fish sandwiches and we're just going to hope people like them for the 10 years it takes us to break even. <laughs> right, uh, <laughs> right. No, it's true. It's true. I mean, there, there's another part here, which is, of course, this makes sense. You're in a... Re- sense or sense, no pun left behind. Uh, you're in a prime area, fraction of the cost. You don't have to worry not just about the expenses involved with having people sit down at a restaurant, but you also will be able to contract out with these third parties, these facilities that just own that commercial kitchen space, and they will do fulfillment and logistic services. So you can get this dream that a lot of people have quested for in hospitality and restaurant restaurant industries. You can just focus on cooking, dude. You don't have to, you don't have to worry about the gripes and the, and the rabble rousers. All you have to do is rent out space at the appropriate facility. In the beginning, people were just running out straight warehouses that had the right utility hookups. But now you're going to find a place that is like, 
a furnished apartment. You can just move your concept in and they'll have everything you need to function at the scale of a physical restaurant. Your work goes into launching the brand. And by the way, depending on the company for an added fee, they're happy to help you with that too. Oh yeah. Are we talking about places like Cloud Kitchen? We are talking about places like Cloud Kitchen. And this was new to me, or at the very least, this particular company, but even the idea of Ghost Kitchens being more of a service, because I think initially it was sort of just a concept where a lot of pre-existing places sort of got this, you know, bright idea, perhaps simultaneously. I want to I want to learn more about the, you know, the history of like whose idea this actually was. But the idea of a company that's like, this is what they specialize in. That was sort of like a, a interesting kind of development for me. I, I wasn't really aware of this angle. What's the name of the guy that started this one? Travis Kalanick? Cal- yes. Is that right? Yeah. Also, he was uh, deep with Uber beforehand. He's a co-founder of Uber. So the one of the guys, one of the brains behind Uber is like, well, let's do uh, let's do something similar here and disrupt the restaurant industry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as long as we hold to our number one priority, not recognizing the rights of the drivers. Yeah, right? or paying taxes correctly, but we'll make the drive. Well, oh, sorry, I mean kitchens. Well, I mean, uh, ooh, never mind. Well, <laughs> so uh, they're going to pay taxes? What are they, poor people? Anyway, so <laughs> – Cloud Kitchens, uh, you can go to their website right now. Let's talk a little bit about them. Uh, According to them, uh, you can get your kitchen up and running in as little as one month-ish. So as little as six weeks, honestly. And they say, look, we also provide facility management. If you've never been in the restaurant industry, that might sound like a dry term, but dudes, dudettes, And dudoids, listen, that means you can work and you don't have to clean grease traps at the end of the day. You don't have to wipe down fryers. You skip all that messy jazz. You just cook and then you go home. You're not a chef if you're not cleaning that kitchen. (laughs) Oh, and that's that's part of the business model, too, is the regimentedness of that and keeping your staff in line and keeping your your place spotless or whatever. But this, to me, sounds a whole lot like a a kind of restaurant version of um, uh, Airbnb, you know, where you get all the privileges of having the space at your disposal, but you don't have to do any of the work. Um, For a price, of course. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, speaking of prices, look at the math for Cloud Kitchen. We're we're using Cloud Kitchen as one example, but there are multiple entities out there. Cloud Kitchen um, tells you, the budding chef or restaurateur, that for as little as $30,000 US, you can start your kitchen going in about six weeks. And then if everything goes right, in six months, you will break even and that creates a 10% profit with $1 million in total sales. Of course, again, these are ideal conditions. This is a lot like, just to be honest, and this is not a ding on Cloud Kitchen, nor its founder, but this is a lot like saying, hey, if you start running when you're little, you can get the gold medal at the Olympics too. You can, potentially, but not everybody does. In the end, all of your efforts, and no matter what your ghost kitchen is, have to work to hit those metrics, right? Yes. Like yeah. your marketing has to be spot on to where people using those apps looks at yours and goes, oh, that is the most appealing insert food type here. And then, you know, enough people have to order amongst all of the, again, if you're in a place that is really big in these ghost kitchens, 
that means there's probably a lot of brick and mortar stores around too. And mm-hmm. somehow you got to beat that competition. Yeah. Well, I had one quick question though. Like, you know, I made the Airbnb kind of uh, connection and I'm not sure if, if I'm missing something here, but it's cloud kitchens that these are all facilities they own and operate or are they connecting uh, budding chefs with available space in potential other ghost kitchens that are run by other individuals largely the former ono spaces uh they also i mean it just makes sense and it could be a really great opportunity for a budding chef again because restaurants are cutthroat business razor thin margins a lot of plagiarism occurring any legal edge is an enormous mission critical advantage to everyone involved including potentially you the customer I'm guys, I'm you're right, man. I'm thinking of these places called salon lofts in Atlanta. Have you ever heard of these? Yeah, is that that where you like uh, I see it a lot in cosmetology? You can rent out a space inside a larger space and you pay them rent. Exactly. That's that's like to me, that's a one to one to that where you've got kitchens in a facility, right? Where you rent your kitchen within their big thing. Oh, there's a place in East Atlanta Village here that's sort of called, I forget what the, the, the official title is, but it's like Buford Highway and EAV or something like that. And Buford Highway is this area of Atlanta that's got a lot of amazing uh, Asian restaurants and um, Latin restaurants and all kinds of different uh, cuisine. But this place, it's got like five or six different rotating, not rotating, that sort of like are there until they move on. But it's in one giant space that clearly they're renting or their little corner of it, almost like you would a table at a flea market or like a, you know, an artist's market or something, you know, uh, like a food hall. Mm-hmm. There you go. Yeah. So I think the example there with the, the pre-furnished apartment in a nice part of town that works really well. And these other examples, the, the salon, the the salon collective also makes a lot of sense this is just good business in the case of these ghost kitchens business is still booming cloud kitchens alone per their website has four separate facilities o and o's in the atlanta area uh surprise by the way in the interest of full transparency uh recently cloud kitchen has had some pretty big problems as the uh, it, like they exploded at the start of the pandemic, but now as of September of 2023, they've been laying off a lot of staff. They've been shuttering warehouse locations because just like ghost kitchens, a lot of businesses that sprang up in the environment of the pandemic are now struggling to function uh, with more and more people, you know, going back to work, hopping back in their cars, going out and frolicking. Yeah, well, it's crazy to think they had a valuation of $15 billion in 2021 because we, again, that pandemic state of mind and reality that we were in, they were like, oh, this is the new thing. This is the future. It will always be like this and it will only grow from here. And it's just changed a lot. Mm -hmm. And the next question is, who is using ghost kitchens? Are they, are they, as I had hoped when we started researching this, are they kitchens populated by ghosts? We'll tell you after a word from our sponsor. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst and the Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. 
Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. And we've returned. As far as we know, all the staff of uh, Ghost Kitchens are, in fact, human beings, which means they're uh, haunted houses with a ghost inside them. So, sort of. <laughs> you mean the hu- the human being is the go- is the haunted house? Yes. Got it. Yeah. Every human being's a haunted house is the argument. <laughs> but the 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 thing is, like, if you think about who uses ghost kitchens if you like uh we had a nice sample size of three here i think without checking with our pal mission control uh we've got some folks who are ordering out once a week maybe twice a week we've got some folks who pretty much avoid it unless time runs against us but if you're a person who for one reason or another uses an online service like this unless you know for sure the restaurant you're ordering from you quite possibly have uh, given business to a ghost kitchen. There's nothing wrong with it. You're one of the people using them. And so the the ghost kitchens, as as we've sort of you know mentioned already, uh, their biggest customers are going to be these aspiring chefs and folks that are trying to break into the restaurant business. Uh, people that have a vision, um, perhaps they've got some sort of brand they're establishing. That's hugely important. Just like you mentioned with the savor conversation, Matt, about the wine labels and all of that. I mean, this stuff is huge, and it can really have an effect on the way that your taste buds perceive this stuff. Um, 
But what are some other examples of folks that would benefit from this kind of model? Guys, I distinctly remember sitting with the two of you in our favorite our favorite restaurant, Dave and Buster's. Um, and we were looking online. We were talking about something called Mr. Beast Burger. And we were looking at their website and we noticed that all of a sudden we had just heard about this thing. They had 50, 60 locations listed like as though they were brick and mortar places. And this was before we knew much about ghost kitchens. This was a relatively new phenomenon. It wasn't like top of mind. And we were like, what the hell is going on here? I know this Mr. Beast guy's got a lot of money, YouTube money, but this seems out of the realm of possibility for anyone, even with like superpowers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the, the big third bucket of ghost kitchen uh, customers is going to be we be not. Thanks for the edit here, Paul. Celebrities. Celebrities love a ghost kitchen. And you're right, Noel. Uh, I, I appreciate bringing up Dave and Buster's in any context, by the way. <laughs> Mr. Beast, back in 2021, street name Jimmy Donaldson, uh, he announced that he opened 300 restaurants across America, caveating we only serve people through delivery apps. And I remember checking this out with you guys because Mr. Beast, the Mr. Beast Burger, it mainstreamed public awareness of ghost kitchens. Uh, for anybody who is not familiar with Mr. Beast, uh, the guy and his team are famous throughout YouTube and therefore the world for conducting these amazing, I don't know, stunts, right? Sometimes pranks like staging uh, a bank, ro- a fake bank robbery that ends up with giving someone a really nice gift at the end wholesome stuff usually and new york times writes about it this mainstreams ghost kitchens and they they say they put the relationship this way they say in exchange for a cut of sales the brand in this case mr beast supplies the name the logo the menu the recipes and the pr images for any restaurant owner with the space and the staff to just make some burgers on the side so it <laughs> so mr beast burger became a little bit like an anonymous collective of food. You know, it's a, it's a Wendy's one day, Wendy's franchise one day. And then later they're also processing Mr. Beast burger orders. Well, and to the point, I think we mentioned early in the episode of the, the kind of scenario with the person getting the Chuck E. Cheese delivery and the driver being like, well, they had this window. Uh, I was watching some YouTube kind of exposés or little news pieces about this stuff. And a lot of these places have like 10 different little sticker things outside of their windows. I get maybe that's the law. I don't know. Maybe it's just a style thing, but it's an odd look in it. And, yeah, I think it's just to let the delivery drivers know, oh, you are in the right place. Like, yeah, I, right. I know this yeah. is confusing, but you're here. It's a hell of a lot cheaper than a sign having it printed and installed. Look, I, I like it. I'm all about that stuff. Uh, and, you know, regardless of how you may feel about places like Grubhub and DoorDash and Uber, the the problems with those places are the systems, right, in which they operate. The problem is just like when you call a big company on the phone, the person who is delivering the food is not, should not be the subject of your ire, right? No. Because they're not the <laughs> no, ones no, no, making no. those decisions. Yeah. I, I will say this is very hard for me to stomach, huh? In, in some ways, because I'm imagining. I'm th- okay, let's just use an example. Um, a you guys know a Whopper. Everybody knows a Burger King Whopper, right? A Burger King Whopper is only that 
because it is the same ingredients at every Burger King, right? right. And yeah. prepared with the same instructions that are at every Burger King. Flame broiled, though, Matt. Flame broiled. But what I mean is, um, for these ghost kitchens, it's essentially the same thing, right? The same ingredients are being delivered to, in a Mr. Beast's example here, it's like to various restaurant kitchens, right, mm-hmm. that are operating. Well, and more importantly, the packaging is all from Mr. Beast Burger. You know what I mean? Like you get these boxes. We we ordered my kid just as a goof, which is Mr. Beast fan. We ordered it once and it was fine. But the novelty of it was that we were ordering fast food delivery from this YouTube star's fake restaurant. Uh, yes. But, but I guess just my point is it, it it with Mr. Beast, it's like various different Fast, not fast food chains. It's like good kitchens, right? Oh, sure. Like book, isn't it? Book de Beppo or is that? Yeah, in like, Midvale, Utah. Yeah, that's one like, example. But it's standardized, and if they do it right, and the kitchens are clean, and people know what they're doing, the food should be identical, is what you're saying, right? It we, should be, yeah. but but just imagine the chefs working at a Buca de Beppo are making it, or is it a separate one or two staff members that, that Mr. Beast is hiring? I have that question as well. Beast is not hiring them. Well, uh, it's a it's a restaurant agreement, but I see I see your point because it it leads us to interrogate the concept of consistency, right? And that depends upon the restaurants getting very very specific step by step instructions. It's also <laughs> it's also uh, hilarious to me to think that you could go into that Buca de Beppo, and you know they're cooking the burgers, but you can't order them. Not not at the place. So the division seems sort of art, artificial. There's also another thing we see, like the importance of branding and public perception. Uh, McDonald's has been making a killing with celebrity sponsored meals. It's still a Big Mac or it's still a you know Big Mac meal, but now it's got BTS packaging slapped on it. The famous oh, K-pop band, right? Uh, or Rick and Morty, Szechuan sauce, and people Travis Scott lose their mind over this mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. yeah, and and that's what that's what the company that partnered with Mr. Beast sought to do. Their name is Virtual Dining Concepts (VDC), and they said, "Okay, this Mr. Beast thing is really good for us. Let's partner with Mario Lopez." Let's from Saved by the Bell. And let's partner with a guy named Polly D. People in the conference room said, Who the heck is Polly D? And from the shore. He's from the shore. And they said, What's the shore? He was like, The Jersey Shore. And (laughs) who knows if they know that's a reality show or if they thought this guy was just big news on the boardwalk of the Garden State. They thought they were talking about Paul Deccan, just styling on it. Right, right. In a different life. DBA, Paul, Mission Control Deccan, DBA is Polly D. It all worked out. As Kurt Vonnegut once said, everything was beautiful and nothing hurt. Kidding. Matt, your point was astute. Mr. Beast had a problem with the quality. Mr. Beast uh, sued VDC eventually to stop production of Mr. Beast burgers entirely. They said this virtual dining concept thing, they're more focused on expanding their business so they can pitch to other celebrities. That that's what they yeah. want to be their primary model, and they're not paying attention to the quality of the food. They're just getting the bag, and then 
ditch in town. Basically. Well, yeah, but did you hear VDC's response to Mr. Yes. Beast's attorneys? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they were essentially like, uh, actually, we didn't want to continue on with the contract with Mr. Beast, and that's why he's upset, and that's why he's suing, so we're countersuing. Wait, so what's the <laughs> truth, though? Because I, I heard Mr. I, I heard kind of both of those, but it sounded to me, so right, to your point, maybe Mr. Beast was just doing a spin on it, but do you guys have a sense of which 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 version is true? I'll mm-hmm. let the courts decide. No. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> it might be it might be something for the courts. The winners in this case are going to be the legal teams because mm-hmm. both sides here have some financial heft. So we we don't know how that will work out. A breached contract argument is nothing new in the business world, but we know this is not all pipe dreams and angel farts. We've seen some companies overexpanding. We've seen bad blood happen between uh, so-called creatives and ghost kitchen initiatives. But one thing's for sure, ghost kitchens are a reality. I don't love the phrase, but they might be the new normal. They've fundamentally transformed the course of the restaurant industry. I did not know this, but you know as a legend in the ghost kitchen game, IHOP, you guys, IHOP is gargantuan in the world of ghost kitchens. That makes so much sense. They can make anything at an IHOP. Their their menus are, they roll deep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They make crepes, for God's sake. Crepes. This is just a tangent here uh, because we're a little looser at the end of the year. But did I tell you guys about Denny's in Japan? Like you guys know Denny's. Do they have moons over my hammy or is it called something different? It is crazy okay first off it's one of the only places that has free refills which is very much an american thing so that alone is a is a huge sale so also ice apparently yeah also, a bit of an american thing also it's a huge uh <laughs> it's a huge step up it's a much uh nicer restaurant and it's weirdly italian by the way uh Denny's in really? Japan at least yeah and it's like uh it, it's a it's a night out on the town kind of place you go to the similar to how uh PBR Paps Blue Ribbon is considered a fancy beer mm. in parts of China and it oh, comes okay. in a whole different like it comes in like a wine bottle it's quite expensive and a look, lot of uh, yeah. beers come in kind of wine bottles over in Japan and China I've noticed mm-hmm. I've seen it in, sure. in, in films anyway yeah and and look, we're not going to disparage the good folks at Denny's, uh, nor PBR, because it did. It is an award-winning beer, I guess technically, right? They named it after the Blue Ribbon. One at that one time, at the very least. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for for a couple of last thoughts on, on my end, I was just wondering, do you guys think that we've already reached kind of peak ghost kitchen, and now the term is sort of a neg? Um, no. You don't yeah. think so? Because to me, in in culinary circles, if if you find out something's coming from a ghost kitchen, then that sort of, I think it sort of carries with it a bit of a, of a, a blotch on the reputation of the food because of all the things we're talking about. But maybe I'm misperceiving. I mean, it's it's perspective, right? Just that, like for one, I don't know if this is helpful, but in the early days of baseball, it was considered cheating to use a glove to catch the ball. And now that's normal. I think what we're seeing is a process of normalization. I think it uh, depends on the situation the too, right? If it's one of those up and coming folks that we're talking about, that's one thing. But if it's Chuck E. Cheese trying to trick you into <laughs> buying their crappy pizza, that's another thing. I, I'm no economist, but I do think we're in a retraction from something that was catching on because it was so economically viable. Now it's customers going through a process of getting used to it. 
right? And once we're used to it enough, I think this is just what it's going to be. Because, you know, if we, we look at what we studied on this show about real estate and commercial real estate, right? And like how expensive that is and how running a brick and mortar in the long run at this point, it's probably going to become less and less of a viable thing. It's already really difficult. It's going to get harder and harder and harder. But then having one big massive kitchen where, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of delivery drivers show up to every day, that's like somewhere central, centrally located in a city. Like, how is that not going to be a thing, you guys? Right. I would argue that what we're seeing as well is a democratization of restaurants through technology, of ownership through technology. For someone starting out, this process is way less intimidating than having to buy out a piece of real estate, make friends with someone for millions of dollars, and then just hope you guys get along for <laughs> the foreseeable future. But it's it's also dependent insidiously, inseparably so, on the concept of third-party delivery apps. And each of those has a troubled history when it comes to workers' rights, fair practices with partner restaurants, and customer satisfaction. I mean, I, I think this is something that we dive into with your help, Conspiracy Realist, in future episodes. I do have one last note for everybody wondering. You heard about the world's first pizza delivery, and you, like us, probably thought, well, did King Umberto tip? On the world's first pizza delivery, that and many other aspects of this story remain the stuff they don't want you to know. Uh, I can't wait to hear what you think, folks. Uh, Matt Knoll, I'm, uh, I am going to guess that a couple of people listening to the show this evening might be driving for DoorDash or Grubhub or Uber Eats as they listen tonight. So it'd be amazing to hear some firsthand experiences with this. A hundred percent. And you can send us those firsthand experiences in all kinds of ways. Uh, first, you can send it to us online via social media uh, where we are Conspiracy Stuff on X, uh, Facebook and YouTube. Also be looking for some really fun YouTube content coming in the very near future. You can also find YouTube shorts that we're already putting out there. And on Instagram and TikTok, find our videos at Conspiracy Stuff Show. Hey, if you want to call us and tell us about your experience with a ghost kitchen parking situation because we read some stories in the news about how crazy the parking is around some of these hubs right call us and tell us with your stories our number is one eight three three stdwytk when you do call in give yourself a cool nickname and then you got three minutes say whatever you'd like just please 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 let us know if we can use your name and message on the air if you've got more to say than can fit in that three minutes why not instead shoot us an email that's right. Send us a good old-fashioned email. Give us those clips. Give us those pictures. Give us the links. Take us to the edge of the rabbit hole. We'll do the rest. We read every note we get at conspiracy at iheartradio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. 
and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.